We are so excited to bring you a new Curbsiders series on teaching and medicine, The Curbsiders Teach. I'm a regular Curbsiders producer, Dr. Molly Hoyblein. And I'm Dr. Ira Krzyzanowskaya, your co-host for The Curbsiders Teach, the internal medicine podcast for all things medical education. We cover topics like bedside teaching, feedback, learner mental health, and know you'll find valuable skills in this podcast series. So let's unlock your potential to be a great medical educator. Join in to hear our expert interviews, bringing you teaching pearls and practice-changing knowledge to inspire the next generation of medical educators. Subscribe to The Curbsiders Teach wherever you get your podcasts. The Curbsiders Podcast is for entertainment, education, and information purposes only, and the topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any diseases or conditions. Furthermore, the views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of the host and should not be interpreted to reflect official policy or position of any entity, aside from possibly cash like moral hospital and affiliate outreach programs, if indeed there are any. In fact, there are none. Pretty much, we aren't responsible if you screw up. You should always do your own homework and let us know when we're wrong. So this is normally the part of the episode where I would be laughing at Matt Watto as he tries to build up the right energy to start the show with, but Watto's not here, and instead you are, are stuck with me, Paul I Williams. Can laugh is at I you? <laughs> sure, but it's, <laughs> I'm awkward in like a different weird way than Matt is awkward. Um, but welcome back to the Curbsiders, I should say. Um, I am joined by my co-host, Dr. Elena Gibson. Dr. Gibson, how are you doing? I'm doing lovely. <laughs> I'm glad to hear it. Uh, tonight, we had the pleasure of discussing the recently updated United States Preventative Services Task Force recommendation for screening for prediabetes and diabetes with our amazing guest, Dr. Chen Wen-Sang. I'm going to let Dr. Gibson tell us a little bit more about uh, the topic in just a minute. But first, let me remind you that we are the Internal Medicine Podcast. We use expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and practice changing knowledge. I will say it is really weird to segue to myself. Having said that, Elena, why don't you give us a, a brief review of some of the things that we talked about tonight? Yeah, so we had a great conversation with Dr. Sang. We talked about the updated USPSTF recommendations for screening for prediabetes and diabetes in patients with a BMI 25 or higher. They recommend screening in individuals 35 to 70 years old for prediabetes and diabetes. Uh, they We also talked a little bit about what to do with that screening and when to repeat it if it's normal usually around three years. And then we talked about some other high risk factors for diabetes and prediabetes and when to consider screening in those individuals. Yeah. And it sounds like, unfortunately, there's still some clinical nuance. So we still actually have to think about stuff, which is, yeah, yeah no, it's, it's unfortunate, but don't please, please continue listening regardless. Um, <laughs> and I should tell you, and our, our guest was fantastic and is, is obviously a member of the USPSTF. So let me tell you about uh, our guest, Dr. Chen Wen Sang who is a family medicine doctor, a researcher, and a proud member of the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force. Every day, she's doing what she loves best, which is caring for patients and teaching the next generation of physicians at the University of Hawaii, John A. Burns School of Medicine, Department of Family Medicine, and Community Health. Outside of medicine, I love this. Her motto is, lack of talent is never a barrier. <laughs> so uh. on my tombstone, uh, <laughs> which she applies liberally to sports, cooking, and pet training, which we should have asked about in the episode, but neglected oh, to. Yeah. So. Well, I have to find an excuse to talk to her again to hear what pets she's training and what she's training them to do. We should also mention that Dr. Sang joined the U.S. PSTF uh, in September of 2016. And with that, we will hear about the new recommendations. Uh, Elena, any any puns, any jokes you want to leave us with? No jokes. <laughs> but you, you should listen to the Black Pumas, their new album. It's very good. I'll give you that. <laughs> All right. So you throw in a quick pick of the week. I love it. All right. On with the show. 
All right, Dr. Sang, thank you so much for joining us. After a myriad of technical difficulties, mostly on my end, um, I think we're now ready to get going and ready to hear a little bit about you. So before we talk about uh, these new recommendations, I'd like to hear a little bit about you. Could you please give us just a one-liner to describe yourself, including ideally something not about medicine? Sure. Uh, 55 years old, um, been 20 years doing family medicine research outside of medicine. I am a single mom for three teenagers and a longtime fan of the curbsiders. Staying busy. <laughs> yes. And we like to ask other kind of fun questions. So wanted to ask, what is the best advice that you have ever received as a learner or as a teacher, maybe in your career? Oh, wow. I've had so many great mentors. Um, I would say it would be from Dr. Bob Brook at UCLA. He um, got us for our research training program, and he took all of us and he said, you're really smart. You're great physicians. You're, I'm sure you'll be great researchers. I am going to teach you how to play nice with others. And that's been a lifelong lesson for me, which is remember the human people skills that carry you far. That is such terrific advice. I felt that that's been much more useful than any intelligence I might have, though. Uh, you know, it's I didn't have a strong baseline to work with. <laughs> Let me ask my, my usual book advice, because um, I really am starting to actually make it through some of the recommendations and actually have um, burned through a lot of my book piles. So I, I am actually ready for some, some new reading material. It doesn't have to be medicine related, fiction, nonfiction, just something that you think our listeners might enjoy. Oh, you're going to love this. Well, um, this is called a uh, pretty good joke book by a Prairie Home Companion. So it's got me through the uh, pandemic or getting me through the pandemic and I curl up with it on very long nights. This feels like a self-evident question. Is it just a book full of jokes or is there more to it than that? <laughs> it's like 300 something pages of uh, really fun laughter and uh, it takes your mind off medicine. All right. Fantastic. Yeah. I think that is actually right up my speed. Yeah. I, I lack attention span these I'll days. I'll send one. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> All right. Well, that's I, that is excellent. I will add that to my list. Hey, Curbsiders. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. You remember BetterHelp. They've been advertising on the show for almost a year now, and we were so excited to have them as a sponsor because, as I've mentioned before, I was using their service long before they were even a sponsor on the show. What I love about this service is it's so easy to get yourself into care and it removes a lot of those barriers that I perceived that made me wait so long to get help. I didn't want to go to a therapist waiting room. I was worried about privacy. Of course, now I'm talking about it on a podcast so everyone knows, but I've, I've grown a lot in the last few years and BetterHelp has helped me with that. So what they're going to do is assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist so you can be matched in under 48 hours. And this is available for clients worldwide. Once you have your therapist, you schedule your weekly video or phone sessions right from the comfort of your own home. It's super easy. And they're committed to facilitating a great therapeutic match for you. So they made it easy and free to change therapists if needed. Plus, BetterHelp is more affordable than the traditional offline therapy and financial aid is available. So visit betterhelp.com slash curb, that's better, H-E-L-P, and join the over 2 million people who have taken charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional. In fact, so many people have been using BetterHelp that they are recruiting additional therapists in all 50 states. As a special offer for Curbsiders listeners, Get 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com slash curb. That's 10% off at betterhelp.com slash curb.
And why don't we, I think, transition seamlessly into our cases. So let's let's get to the meat of the topic. We're talking about the new recommendations for screening for, for diabetes and prediabetes. And I think, uh, Elena, we have a case to talk about. Yes, we do. So the first case, let's call him Mr. Sugar, is a 36-year-old. <laughs> not even trying anymore. <laughs> He's a 36-year-old male who presents to your clinic for follow-up of generalized anxiety disorder he has no additional past medical history, and his BMI is 27.4. So when would the USPSTF recommend screening for prediabetes and type 2 diabetes in non-pregnant adults, and how does this apply to his case? Sure. So this is um, the recommendation is to screen all adults ages 35 to 70 who have overweight or obesity. So with Mr. Sugar, you know, he's 36, so he meets the age range from 35 to 70. Mm -hmm. And his BMI is 27, which meets the threshold for overweight. So this is somebody we would screen for diabetes and prediabetes. Okay. And how, how does that differ from prior recommendations? Well, our last recommendation, 2015, we started at age 40 for the screening. We've really dropped it down to age 35. So this is important for people to remember now. It's really at a younger age, starting at age 35 for people with overweight and obesity. And I'm always curious what prompts the decision to update a recommendation. So is there is there new data that came in or what sort of informed the decision to revisit this and, and, and update it? Yeah. So, Paul, you know, one of the main reasons we dropped the age 35 is because we're really following the public health crisis. You know, the rates of diabetes are re have really increased over the last 10 years, as well as the risk factors, which is primarily overweight and obesity. So what we're seeing is um, it, we really need to screen. In the U.S., one in three adults at some point are going to be affected by diabetes in their lifetime. And it's the seventh leading cause of death. So we can't miss this opportunity to make a difference. Yeah, and I thought it was interesting some of the data on how many people don't know they have diabetes, like the the percentage of adults who are diagnosed with diabetes who didn't know that they had it before when they were doing these like larger studies. Yeah, so this really gets at why do we have to actually screen people who really have no symptoms, right? So in the U.S., for the one in eight adults that have diabetes, something like 21% of people aren't aware of that fact. And then when it comes to prediabetes, for the one in three people that have prediabetes, up to 85% of people with prediabetes aren't aware either. So without screening, we may never actually know until somebody becomes symptomatic or actually has you know, some of those poor outcomes like heart attack or stroke. Yeah, I'd like to, to clarify if I can. So I, I just want to make sure I'm understanding. When you say patients don't know, does that, do the data mean the patients don't know until they're diagnosed with it? Or are these people that have had maybe lab values that would be consistent with prediabetes, but were not aware of the diagnosis? Because I feel like that's something I actually see in clinical practice a lot, where someone's had an A1C of, say, 5.8 for years and years and years. And then you say, oh, and also you're prediabetic, and this is new information for them. So it's I, it may be an academic distinction, but is it new diagnoses of prediabetes or the fact that they carry the diagnosis and just didn't know that they had it? I think these are really um, a sort of a combination of both. So for diabetes, it's really the data um, surveys of people that really weren't aware that they had diabetes out of people who are estimated to have diabetes. But for people with prediabetes, 85% had never been told by their physician that they had prediabetes. So, you know, those are big numbers to work with when we think about how, you know, <laughs> we could do better. Yeah, definitely. Uh, and then something to kind of make the point of too, this is definitely people who you're not seeing prior, this recommendation is for people who have not shown prior lab values to suggest they might have diabetes. This is just anyone 30 to 75 who falls into an overweight or obese category. 
Right. It's actually anybody from 35 to 70. So it's people who don't have symptoms. You know, clearly as you know, clinicians, if somebody has symptoms, that's concerning. Uh, we should definitely be diagnosing at that stage, right? But people who come in, like you said, Mr. Sugar comes in for generalized anxiety, but they fall into that age group, 35 to 70, and they have overweight or obesity, we should be screening them for diabetes as well. Which then begs the question, so you, you'll have... And the risk factors, I think we'll talk more about in sort of a subsequent case, but you have a patient who meets the screening criteria uh, by the new recommendation. Is there a recommended screening test? I feel like A1C is the one that we see commonly, but can you use a, can you use a fasting glucose or what, what other, what testing modalities are sort of accepted in terms of the new recommendation? So here we follow the American Diabetes Association guidelines. So there's the fasting uh, blood sugar that we can do. You have to have eight hours of fasting. Or you can do the hemoglobin A1C, which you can just a blood draw at any time to check for diabetes. There's a third one in some cases called the oral glucose tolerance test. You fast, you take a 75 gram of glucose, and then you measure your blood sugar at two hours. Any of these three are really appropriate for screening. And I've always kind of wondered that the oral glucose challenge test for screening, is there any benefit? I, I know in pregnancy it's used, but outside of that? Yeah. So people ask, you know, really of these three, uh, is one better than the other? And particularly is the toughest one, <laughs> you know, the one you have to stay there for two hours. Is that really uh, much better? And you're right. We use it most often in people who are pregnant to look for gestational diabetes, some versions of it. And honestly, you know, the American Diabetes Association accepts any of the three. Now, to make the diagnosis of diabetes, if you have something abnormal, and unless it's pretty clinically obvious that they have diabetes, it needs to be confirmed with a second test. And that's important for people to know. For pre-diabetes, where the test is uh, not quite normal, but hasn't reached the diabetes threshold, then you don't need the confirmatory test. Your question of is the uh, glucose tolerance test actually better than the A1C or the fasting blood sugar, um, it tends to diagnose more people. Some of the other ones, though, are, you know, a fasting blood sugar or um, just a random blood draw that gives you the A1C is just so much more convenient for some people to do. So it, it's perfectly acceptable way of screening. Yeah, I remember I used to work with a uh, an ophthalmologist at Cashlack who swore by the, um, the glucose tolerance test and was sort of agnostic when it came to the A1C. So if these poor patients just had a whisper of retinopathy, then they'd be shunted off for the, the glucose tolerance test, which just seemed like cruel and unusual punishment for someone who just went in for an eye examination. But um, some, there, there are unexpected, yeah, yes. but, the, but there, there are adherence to it. Yeah. I mean, you just want a pair of glasses and next thing you know, you're just sort of horking down glucola, but, um, <laughs> or you can say, Hey, I went for an eye exam. My doctor gave me sugar. <laughs> Isn't that great? <laughs> Look on the bright side. <laughs> right. And then kind of thinking about the, the evidence review for the benefit of screening, uh, it was interesting to look through what that benefit was. And it looked like in that review, there was no mortality benefit found for screening for diabetes, but there was benefit in patients who were recently diagnosed with diabetes actually intervening there. Can you explain how that worked out? Because it seems like one would lead to the other and how this informed the recommendation. Yeah, sure, Elena. Um, so let's step back a little bit and say, you know, why do we screen? What happens when we actually find diabetes? So in the ideal world, what we would do is this big randomized controlled trial with lots of people that says half the people go for screening and half the people don't go for screening. And then we're going to follow them out for decades, 20, 30 years, and we're going to look at really important health outcomes. Does it reduce somebody's risk of dying? 
Does it reduce risk of heart attack, strokes, um, kidney disease, and uh, neurological disease? So a couple of those studies have been done. But in those studies, they really only were able to follow people out for as short as 10 years so to look at rates of death. So they didn't find a difference, but they're not definitive because we really, that's a very short time, right? To look for differences in rates of dying um, 10 years out from screening. So then the question is, well, what happens after that? What we have to look at then is what happens in people who have newly diagnosed diabetes or recently diagnosed diabetes? Can we make a difference? If we treat them really well, does it make a difference 10 or 20 years down the line in terms of some of the things that we're really interested in? And so I just want to make sure I'm clear on this. And so that the patients who have the recently diagnosed diabetes, but not done by screening, when those patients, when the diagnosis is made and then they are treated aggressively, those patients do have mortality benefit and do do better than, than in the absence of intensive interventions. And so part of the recommendation is extrapolating that out um, to patients who are then screened and found to have diabetes. Am I understanding that correctly? Did that make sense the way that I said that? Yes, absolutely. So there are big landmark studies, um, in particular, the UKPDS, the United Kingdom Prospective Diabetes Studies, that really looked at in people with um, newly diagnosed, recently diagnosed diabetes, around 7,000 of them, what happens if you do routine care versus really good control of their diabetes? And there, they follow people out to almost 20 years. And it was very clear that for these people who got really good control, that you could reduce the risk for death and you could reduce the risk for heart attacks. So this is why we actually do the screening. Our thought is it's not perfect. The people you find through screening might be earlier into disease and people you know, who presented with symptoms and got newly diagnosed. But still, it gives us that signal to say, yes, we would screen. And yes, when we screen, we would treat appropriately in somebody with diabetes. And then 20 or 30 years down the line or even 10 years down the line, maybe that could actually make a difference. And if you think about it, you know, when we're talking about potentially one in three Americans being affected by diabetes at some point in their lives, being able to change the risk for death or heart attacks, it's a big, it's significant. It's something we really want to do for our patients, even if it, though it takes a while. Yeah. And this may not be the, the perfect place for this, but I know that oftentimes, not oftentimes, every time the USPSTF weighs the benefits of screening for something versus the potential harms from it. And I, it's, this one, I, I, you know, if I, if you asked me to kind of come up at the top of my head, what harms could come from screening, I'd be hard pressed to think of too, too many, but did, were any harms identified or were there any particular concerns in terms of the downsides for screening in this patient population? So our task force always looks at the harms because we know they are potential uh, risks. So in the case of screening for diabetes, you know, there are studies that looked at the harms, but here you're right. There's really very downside to doing the screening. So the main things they looked at was really anxiety. So what they found was really no difference. Um, there is a, some temporary anxiety when somebody gets diagnosed with diabetes, but we all understand that. Uh, and it's temporary, you know? Yeah, ideally, yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so if we're really good at reassuring people, yeah. And for most of these studies, just for interest too, the interventions, it was just lifestyle and then medications, all of that was included. Right. So for the um, UKPDS looking at recently diagnosed um, diabetes, it's really looking at very good control. So okay. they randomized people to all different things, um, insulin, sulfonyrs, metformin, and looking at, it's really all the things we would do today, yeah. you know, when a patient actually gets diagnosed with diabetes, we're there to take care of them. Well, especially now that, like, and I know that obviously this is, this will be determined just by history. But I guess now that we actually have medications for diabetes that have such clear impact on cardiovascular mortality specifically, now that we have the GLP-1 agents and the SGLT-2 inhibitors, um, which were not around during the time of that study, like I, 
you would imagine the effects would be even more marked and, and dramatic now that we're, we're sort of case finding. Yeah, you're completely right. And, and if you compare that to, you know, if we don't actually even know if somebody had diabetes, right, waiting till they become symptomatic. Um, that's why I, I'm not sure that we could do this very large randomized control trial of screening anymore. You know, could we really put half the people and say, hey, we're not going to screen you, even though you might have risk factors. <laughs> right. yeah. It starts to feel kind of unethical when you know the prevalence is as high as it is. Yeah, yeah seems wrong. Um, okay, so let's say Mr. Sugar, he gets a screening A1C, it's 4.8 percent. He returns to the office one year later for follow-up. Uh, when would repeat screening be recommended? Say his BMI has uh, only gone up to about 29. So there's not as many studies on how often to repeat screening when something is normal. Um, the American Diabetes Association recommends if your initial screening test was completely normal, repeating every three years. The task force thinks that's reasonable. Okay. And is that just based on like when people, I guess, how often people, the incidents following initial screening? Yeah. So um, like I said, there's not a lot of extensive studies. So the task force also really points out when we really have research gaps. Yeah. So we don't want to overdiagnose people, right? Um, this is really sort of a continuum of blood sugars. Some people go back to normal. Some people get worse. Uh, with diabetes, we really want to make sure people are taken care of once they're diagnosed. Once you have a completely normal test, you know, 4.7 is, 4.8 is pretty terrific. Um, it makes sense that they're actually pretty far from the threshold for even being pre-diabetic. So every three years, it's probably a good one. Having said that, things might change, right? They might have yeah. a big increase in their weight. They might develop hypertension. You might start looking at thinking about screening sooner if there's different risk factors. Yeah. And I guess, again, it comes back to like the risk is not very high and there is, you know, a high amount of benefit depending on the situation. So. All right. So to recap what we have so far, so it's, we, so I can't believe we went Mr. Sugar. I will just be, I will not be, <laughs> stop thinking about that for months, but we have a patient who, so basically in terms of what I'm understanding, the recommendations have now changed from the 2015 recommendations. So any patient with a BMI that is in the range of overweight uh, to obese should be screened starting at age 35 and going to age 70. And that is a younger age than was previously recommended, which I believe, was it 40? Yes, okay. it was 2015, it was 40, but now we So start now we're starting five years younger. Um, and the idea being is that obviously if we can detect earlier than make the interventions, we are likely to impact mortality sort of based on um, patients who have been recently diagnosed with diabetes in some of the older studies. In terms of screening interval for someone who does not have a positive screen and no new risk factors, we feel like three years is probably reasonable. And that's based largely on ADA recommendations. Is everything all that right so far? That's uh, perfect. Excellent. All right. Then with that, why don't we change the case up? I think we have another case that might be marginally more interesting. <laughs> not, not, that, okay. not that the screening part is not fascinating, but Mr. Sugar's boring. That's all I'm saying. I mean, we have things to work on, but not, <laughs> not, not sugar stuff. So let's talk about um, case number two. Okay. So Mrs. K, she's a 42-year-old. She has class two obesity, and she's presenting to clinic after her screening for diabetes identified an A1C of 5.7. So what is the benefit in her of screening for pre-diabetes. Okay. So now we're talking about something different. For A1C, the cutoff is really 5.7 to 6.4, says you're in the pre-diabetes range. So you haven't quite reached the diabetes range of uh, cutoff at 6.5. So here, this is where the evidence is. So, you know, if you think about it, if it was hard to find really hard health outcomes for screening for diabetes, it's going to be even harder 
to do those studies for people with prediabetes because they're earlier on. So now we look at really some of the studies that say, well, can we actually prevent or decrease the risk for progressing to diabetes from prediabetes? You know your body's already not handling the sugar as well as it could, but can we somehow reduce the risk that you'll eventually develop diabetes? And here there are studies that say, yes, you can do things. Specifically, um, the most important would be lifestyle changes to actually reduce the risk for going on to diabetes. And I guess, yeah, that was that was a question we talked a little bit about off air in terms of the idea of having a recommendation that encompasses both screening for prediabetes and diabetes, because it feels sometimes like they behave almost like two different disease states, though it varies from patient to patient. You know, I think we've we've seen, I will talk a little bit about this, but we've seen patients with a diagnosis of prediabetes that stayed there for all eternity and never actually progressed. And then we see patients that seem to fall off a cliff. So I, I guess what I'm hearing you say is that it sounds like the the thinking of the USPSTF in terms of prediabetes is part of the spectrum of just sort of impaired glucose. So it, so it ranges from prediabetes to diabetes. And the idea is to find that early to prevent progression. Is that fair to say? Yeah. And, and there's, you know, some slight differences, right? If you think about why we actually have um, higher blood sugar than normal, something's going on with our bodies. Maybe we ate more, but maybe we can't handle the sugar as well as before. And by the time you're sort of um, doing that in such a way that you're hitting thresholds, which are at the diabetes range, it's probably less likely you're going to go completely back to normal. Having said that, we all have patients that are amazing, right? They stay in the diabetes, well, diet controlled for ages. And we also see some people, uh, depending on what's going on in their lives, jump to completely out of control. And we're really struggling with that. When it comes to the pre-diabetes range, we're really saying, look, this is earlier in the disease or condition, probably a better way to say it. Some people might go back to normal. Some people might stay in the pre-diabetes range. Some people are going to go on to diabetes. In some of the bigger studies, as many as 28% of the people over the course of just under three years progressed from pre-diabetes to diabetes. So that's not insignificant. So why do we screen? Well, we screen because on, if we don't screen, we don't know if somebody has pre-diabetes. They're not likely to have any symptoms, right? And then once we know the benefit is, well, there's something we can do about it, which is lifestyle changes. And we can also monitor a little closer. We want to know which way somebody goes. And along those lines, is does the USPSTF comment on interval screening for someone who would screen positive for prediabetes or sort of once you once you have the diagnosis, then you're sort of out of screening territory and that's sort of less in this domain? So there it falls under the American Diabetes Association. They're actually recommending that once you're in the prediabetes uh, range that you follow every year. The task force feels that's reasonable as well. And I guess this, and you know, there's, you could, I guess you could always sort of nickel and dime um, specific case things, but you, you mentioned patients will sometimes revert to you glycemia. Let's say they, they really make a commitment to therapeutic lifestyle changes and they, they lose the weight and their A1C responds the way that you hope that it would. And they fall into the quote, normal category. Do, this is so specific. We can cut this out if, if you don't have a specific answer for it. But if that's the case, do you then go back to every three years? Um, do you still continue screening yearly because they've declared themselves as someone who has perhaps impaired glucose tolerance or is that so narrow that's outside the scope of this recommendation. I don't think it's narrow. And it happens all the time, you know, in real life. There's really no good studies on it, right? So they've lost weight. They've made the lifestyle changes. It's it's terrific that they're euglycemic now. Do we check again in one year or three years? Uh, nobody really knows. I think we would look and say if they stay pretty good and they're pretty good for a certain number of times, you know, checking every year and they're still very good blood sugars, um, maybe we could space it out a little bit more, especially if nothing else has changed. 
But you know, that's putting my clinician hat on and the task force. Yes. <laughs> I just have to be clear, the task force uh, is really hasn't found the data to support a specific recommendation on that. <laughs> well, yeah. Yeah, so you Paul, it, you, really. <laughs> Paul, that was narrow, though clinically relevant. <laughs> yeah, I feel like it does make you wonder, like, for example, if someone's been overweight or obese for 20, 30 years, it seems like their glucose intolerance would not necessarily change overnight or they're like impaired glucose metabolism. Those things would take more time or how, you know, how would your metabolism keep up with just rapid weight change, you know? So we definitely need more studies. We want to know what happens to people who are sort of in this, I'm almost there, but not quite there yeah. <laughs> stage. Hey, Curbsiders. Let me remind you about our sponsor today, Green Chef. Now, Paul has admitted on the show that if left to his own devices, he's going to end up eating hot garbage. Even though he eats mostly vegetarian, it's still possible to eat pretty unhealthy as a vegetarian. But what we love about Green Chef is they're going to send you hand-picked organic veggies and premium proteins right to your home. And it's a sustainable meal kit. They offset 100% of their plastic packaging in every box and 100% of their carbon footprint and emissions. So you can feel good about where this is coming from. Green Chef has everyone covered, whether you're keto, paleo, whether you're vegan, vegetarian, just want to eat balanced meals, they have it all. I personally love Green Chef because, as I mentioned, I don't really understand how to season food. I don't know what kind of things go well together. I just know how to cook food so it won't kill me if I eat it. But with Green Chef, they send me all the ingredients I need I can cook it with my children who are now old enough to at least start to operate things in the kitchen and we have a great time cooking the meal and I get to look like I actually know what I'm doing once in a while. So I love making these meals. It's fun for the whole family. I don't think that's their slogan, but they can take that if they want it. So what are you waiting for? Go to greenchef.com slash curb 10 and use code curb 10 to get 10 free meals, including free shipping. That's greenchef.com slash curb10 and use the code curb10 to get 10 free meals, including free shipping. Green Chef is the number one meal kit for eating well. All right. And now I, I think, why don't we move on to our last case? Because I think that's the one that actually has a, a fair amount of nuance and is, is kind of interesting. So Elena, bring us home. Do we have a clever name for, I think, our third and final patient? Hmm. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to push you on the spot. I'm... We can call him Mr. Beat. He's a 34-year-old <laughs> with a history of hypertension. So he's coming into clinic for follow-up of his hypertension. Uh, his BMI is 24, and his blood pressure is at goal on 5 of lisinopril. So for Mr. Beat, is screening for prediabetes or diabetes recommended in a patient like him with risk factors for diabetes other than being overweight or obese, such as high blood pressure? Yeah, so he doesn't quite fall in, you know, the recommendation in terms of um, being overweight or having an, um, obesity. So he wouldn't be screened based on those guidelines. Having said that, 
you know, often as clinicians, you know, when somebody has um, one cardiovascular risk factor, such as hypertension or high cholesterol, we go looking for all the other ones that are that need to be controlled as well, right? We look at people in the whole package. So probably, you know, as a clinician, for his hypertension, I'd be screening him for high cholesterol and diabetes at the same time. And this brings us to a really important point. You know, the task for guidelines on screening really says these are the people you definitely should screen. It doesn't say for people outside of those that we shouldn't screen. What we do recommend is actually for people who fall out of sight of the age range or maybe have a normal BMI, we actually use our clinical judgment, right? We look at this person in front of and say, well, did they have gestational diabetes? If so, we definitely should be screening. Do they have other risk factors like smoking? Do they have a strong family history? All those things are really important. Yeah, I, it's, I was interested in the the other considerations. Like, I think it's very thoughtfully worded, like consider screening at a younger age if the patient meets it, certain higher risk factors. And there was a little bit of uh, discussion about a lower BMI range for Asian American patients specifically. I, I wonder if you wouldn't mind talking a little bit about that data, because I feel like that's something that doesn't come up commonly when I'm sort of talking about things with resident clinic. Like I feel we're very concrete as long as we have a number that we can memorize, we sort of stick with it. Now we're sort of talking about moving the marker a little bit. So what, what was the thinking around that consideration? Right. So the recommendation if, you know, for the general population is if your BMI is over 25, 25 and older, excuse me. So that puts you in the overweight obesity range. So for Asian Americans, for whatever reason, there is data showing that even at a lower BMI, Asian Americans, Asians are actually at higher risk for diabetes compared to um, to the white population. So because of that, the task force does say in our clinical consideration to say for somebody who's Asian American to consider screening once the BMI is 23 and above. And then any other, because that's such, it's such like a nicely nuanced uh, consideration, I think probably won't get talked about. Um, uh, hopefully, well, hopefully it will. Um, but I'd like to amplify considerations like that. Are there any other sort of subtleties that we should be mindful of? Any other groups that would fall into just consider screening at a younger age? I think people should also know that, you know, diabetes is something that has uh, significant health disparities. So the rates are much higher for Blacks, uh, Hispanic, Latinx, um, certain Asian American groups, um, as well as Pacific Islander Native Americans. So we just have to be really aware. We don't know whether it's really due to some of the things that lead to overweight and obesity or there's other risk factors. But we can't forget that when we talk about diabetes, that it's really disproportionately affecting certain groups of people. So we really have to address that. And that's something the task force also really wants to point out. I know we've talked about Asian Americans. It, it, does it apply really to Asian Americans like once you've, you're in the America, in the United States, or is it more globally that's true as well? So, you know, people don't aren't aware of this, but depending on the country you're on, the definition of overweight actually isn't always 25. And in China, it's actually a little lower. The question of, well, are we at higher risk? Um, are we second generation and still at higher risk? Well, I think part of it depends on whether we're eating French fries and hamburgers right now, you know, <laughs> versus uh, vegetables. Um, it, I'm not sure there's definitive evidence on that, but okay. I think it is important for clinicians to be aware, you know, for Asian Americans, we might screen at a lower BMI than just the strict 25 and up. So I, I wanted to ask about the the screening age range. So we, we spent some time talking about why screening at a younger age, um, just because the prevalence is going up and the disease is so prevalent. Um, but I'm wondering at the screening up to the age of 70, what, what data informed that decision? Because it just seems like it, it seems so late to be diagnosing new diabetes, or if you if you diagnose new prediabetes, what real clinical relevance is that in someone who's, say, 68 years old? So what, what, what data informed the decision to screen up to the age of 70? 
So I think people ask, you know, if we are um, screening, why do we even stop, right? Why? Because we know that the rates of diabetes actually increase as you get older. And most of that is because if you develop diabetes at age 35, you probably still have diabetes at age 75 as well. The really question, the real question is, what's the age What's the likelihood of developing new diabetes once you've been okay, you know, most of your adult life, and now you reach 70, how likely are you actually get diabetes after that? But really, um, I'm not sure there's hard evidence to say for across the general population what that risk is. Having said that, one of the reasons why we sort of recommend up to age 70, but not past age 70 is because of this, when we look at sort of what are the benefits of the interventions, we're looking at preventing death. And we're looking at preventing some of those longer outcomes like heart attacks and strokes and effects on the kidneys and on the neurological system. So for those, it took many years to show up. So the question is, well, if it takes 20 years for you know, a decreased rate in, um, in death, then maybe we don't need to be screening at age 85. So having said that, again, this is a recommendation about when we definitely should screen, 35 to 70 with overweight obesity. We're not saying to not screen after that. We really use our clinical judgment. Okay. That makes sense. Yeah. And a central thesis of the show is just us begging for someone just to tell yep. us what to do, but it sounds like we still have to actually think and, and look at the patient in front of us, which is unfortunate, but we'll, we'll do what we have to. Yeah, that's I also- was just having the same <laughs> realization. It was very sad. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's the beauty of it is, you know, we go in there and we're using who we are and our skills to really make a difference for somebody. So if it was just a simple checklist, uh, you know, all our visits would be 30 seconds long. (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah, not mine, but. (laughs) That's true. It is nice. It's just an art I haven't perfected. (laughs) All right. I think that that brings us to uh, near the end. I, I think we did want to talk a little bit about comparing and contrasting the USPSTF recommendations with the other recommendations that exist. So, for instance, the American Diabetes Association or the American Association of Clinical Endocrinology have their own specific recommendations. Do you mind um, contrasting for us sort of what that what the major differences are and what the agreements are? Sure. The agreements are Lord <laughs> Almighty. Agreement. Agreements are. I get asked this all the time, which is there's other guidelines out there. You know how does a task force compare? So you know the American Diabetes Association. Uh, is definitely one of the other bigger ones. And we're really all on the same page when it comes to people 35 to 70 who have overweight or obesity. All our guidelines, even with the variations, we overlap in this area. So we definitely should be screening 35 to 70 with overweight and obesity. The American Diabetes Association says we screen everybody age 45 and older. And then we also screen anybody with overweight and obesity who might be younger than the age 35 if they have additional risk factors. But those risk factors, uh, at least one additional risk factor, and those risk factors can be anything from just being um, from a race ethnicity that has a higher prevalence to not being very physically active. So it's very, very broad screening. And once again, you know, our task force really focuses on who we should be screening uh, in everybody, uh, 35 to 70 with overweight obesity. We say clinical judgment for everything else. So I'm not sure there's a whole lot of disagreement, but it does um, really, I think we we all emphasize the importance of screening. All right. Excellent. Elena, any other questions? Anything that we missed? No, I think that really sums it up well. So just to recap what we've talked about, the latest USPSTF recommendations recommend screening for prediabetes and diabetes and individuals who are overweight or obese, meaning their BMI is greater than or equal to 25, and they are 35 years to 70 years in age. And then as far as repeat screening, if that screening is normal, 
there's not a lot of evidence behind you know the benefit and timing there, but recommend at three years based on the ADA guidelines as well. And then additional kind of points we talked about could consider screening Asian Americans at a BMI of 23 since there's evidence that the BMI might not correlate to their risk as well or at the same numbers. Um, And then other things to just kind of remember is that clinical judgment is very important here. So if patients have other risk factors or say they're they're younger than this 35 and they have a lot of risk factors, screening should be considered. That's perfect. All right. Thank you so much, Dr. Dr. Singh. This was extraordinarily helpful. Any any other points or any other takeaways that we should include for our audience before we let you go? Uh, no, that was a great recap. Uh, there is one clinical pearl, you know, when we have somebody with prediabetes and we're recommending lifestyle interventions, we should say, actually, uh, these are pretty solid lifestyle recommendations people have to make. So in the studies, just to remind people, it wasn't just, um, you know, go and walk once in a while. It's really, they were asking people to lose 7% of their baseline weight, as well as 150 minutes of um, moderate activity exercise. Per, per week. So that's, you know, brisk walking gets your heart rate up uh, five times a day for 30 minutes. All very consistent with what we should be doing if we have overweight or obesity anyway, but very effective for reducing the risk for diabetes. Yeah, that's a terrific point. We say lifestyle changes, and we just kind of toss it off there. But if you think about what those two words actually mean, like it is a complete change in lifestyle that we're sort of asking for a lot of our patients. So it's it's fairly intensive. Yeah, we have to change that last name of Mr. Sugar too. <laughs> Because <laughs> it does include yeah. a low calorie, low low fat diet. So. We'll, we'll fix that in post. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this has been another episode of the Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. Yummy. <laughs> With conviction, get your show notes to thecurbsiders.com forward slash podcast. And while you're there, sign up for our mailing list at thecurbsiders.com forward slash knowledge food to get our weekly show notes in your inbox. Also, don't forget about our new newsletter, the Curbsiders Digest, that will keep you abreast of all the updates and exciting things happening in internal medicine. We're committed to providing you with high-value practice-changing knowledge, and to do that, we need your feedback, so please subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts or contact us at thecurbsiders at gmail.com. A special thanks to our producers for this episode, myself, Elena Gibson, <laughs> and to our social media team, Beth Garbs Garbatelli on Twitter, Madison Mad Dog Morgan on Instagram, Tima Kargadov on our website, and Chris the Chew Man Chew on Facebook. Till next time, Elena Gibson here. And we would be remiss if we did not thank the great Stuart Brigham for composing the theme music you are doubtless hearing behind our voices. We should also thank the wonderful Claire Morgan of Notterly for editing our audio, especially this show, which will be a, a special challenge for him. As always, our main doctor, Paul Nelson Williams, thank you and goodbye. Goodbye.